and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Trish McGregor. And Rob McGregor. And our producer and tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular blog posts and where you can find out about our books. Among them are Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities, The Secrets of Spirit Communication, Sensing the Future, and Aliens in the Backyard. Our upcoming book out now is called The Shift, Reports from the Mystical Underground. Trisha's latest novel is White Crows, and Rob has recently completed releasing the audio edition of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. Our guest today is Melvin Morris, a former uh, critical care physician who studies the near-death experiences, or who studied the near-death experiences of children at Seattle's Children's Hospital. He has published several books and scientific papers on near-death experiences, spiritual healing, remote viewing, and the entire range of spiritual visions surrounding the dying process. He was described by NBC News as doing more than any other scientist to prove the existence of life after death. His international bestseller, Closer to the Light, describes it in the ease of children. His second book, Transformed by the Light, documented the long-term positive transformations of children who had NDEs. His third book, Parting Visions, detailed the shared dying experiences of children and adults. His latest book, Where God Lives, discusses spiritual neuroscience and exactly how our brains are connected to the universe. His books were co-authored with science writer and documentary filmmaker, Paul Perry. Welcome, Melvin. Oh, I've been looking forward Melvin. to this. <laughs> well, thank you so much. What a great introduction. Yeah. Can you describe? I just hope I can live up to it. Yeah. <laughs> you already so, have. <laughs> so can you describe how you uh, got interested in children's near-death experiences? I really can because I just think people have to know this. That makes sense. A drain at Johns Hopkins is not a hotbed of touchy fairly spiritual medicine. <laughs> you know, really. And I was always taught when you're dead, you're dead. You know, consciousness creates, is created by the brain. So, and it's mostly doing critical care medicine, which is, is sort of like a lot of technical stuff. And um, it's not a very touchy-feely thing. So, I was in Pocatello, Idaho, and there was this young girl who was just found in a community swimming pool, 20 minutes underwater. Wow. So uh, she was found, uh, and we ultimately resuscitated her. Um, a very difficult, long resuscitation, and it's fair to say that she was clinically dead. Um, for example, she had a Glasgow coma score of three, which people rarely recover from. Hmm. So um, 
I was very surprised <laughs> when uh, I saw her in follow-up. I happened to also be working in a clinic in the uh, community. And uh, I said, oh, hi, Crystal. You know, you don't remember me, but I remember you. And she turns to her mom and she says, oh, no, I know that guy. That's the one that put a tube in my nose. Wow. <laughs> and she went on to give a blow by blow, accurate description of her resuscitation, huh. including being in a CAT scanner, including uh, she was so far gone that I didn't really feel comfortable to handle it myself. So I was constantly calling them back at Seattle Children's Hospital. You know, what do I do now? What, you know, <laughs> you know when, when are we going to stop? That kind of thing. And she heard it all. Huh. And then here's a thing that, you know, so I think hard for people to understand. Did she have any brain damage, Alvin? She had no brain damage. Wow. And <laughs> see, Cardiac, real cardiac resuscitations are nothing like what you see on TV. So she didn't learn this from watching TV. Right. <laughs> the only way she could have known how she was resuscitated was if she actually saw it herself. And that's what she said. She said she was floating in the ceiling, looking down. And, um, you know, so <laughs> I said to her, so what do you remember about being in the swimming pool? And what I was getting at was we didn't know how she came to be found in the swimming pool. So, you know, I was always taught to ask those kinds of open-ended questions. And, you know, I had great professors at Johns Hopkins. And I did that. And she looks at me and she goes, oh, you mean when I was with the Heavenly Father? Wow. And then, then, then she pats me on the wrist and she goes, you'll see Dr. Morse, heaven is fun. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just got into it with Facebook, with somebody on Facebook today. And, you know, I've done this for 35 years and I've written skeptic, four books on it. A skeptic on Facebook? No, he okay. was, uh, I'm not sure how I'd classify him, but his concern was that I'm already a believer. And so, you know, that we tend to find what we want to find. Uh -huh. And no, <laughs> we weren't believers. <laughs> we thought this was really weird. This defied everything. And I was working in the Department of Neurology at the time at Seattle Children's Hospital. So I actually had a conversation with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at the time. And she was telling me, oh, yeah, we hear all this stuff. And we thought that it was drugs that caused this or maybe a lack of oxygen to the brain or maybe it was some kind of hallucination at the point of death. I mean, that's what we thought. So, you know, like I said, I got into it with somebody on Facebook today and he said, I don't believe this near-death research. I don't believe any of it. I don't believe any of it. Well, guess what? We didn't believe it either. <laughs> you know, and I get that. I think it's so counterintuitive that 
unless you study it for yourself. It's hard to believe. And that is actually why I'm on your show today or these kinds of shows in general. Yeah. Because it just, you know, I feel I've been given a sacred trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melvin when, Melvin, when you uh, had that experience with that girl uh, in the pool for, who survived from the pool, had you read uh, Kenneth Ring's book on NDAs at that time? NDAs? No. Oh, okay. That's not so, the kind of stuff so, we're reading. <laughs> yeah, okay. So you, you weren't studying NDAs in any way or just curious at the time? Uh, no. Okay. Um, I was a critical care physician and um, pretty much was interested in the technical aspects of resuscitating patients. Mm-hmm. That's, mm. But I do have to tell you, Raymond Moody is my brother-in-law. <laughs> oh, really? For real? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's but that's only because I met him after the fact. Um, <laughs> he's the one that convinced me to read a book. <laughs> my mother, my mother, I, I she's passed but i love my mother so she used to go to all these conferences and stuff and she heard raymond moody speak (laughs) so my mother goes up afterwards she said ah that's nothing my son the doctor (laughs) (laughs) Um, he hears this kind of stuff from his patients all the time (laughs) so raymond moody came out to visit me and sure enough i did tell him about uh crystal merzlock's experience Mm-hmm. How old was Kristen? Uh, she was seven. Wow. So they're not making this stuff up. No. Yeah. And not at seven. You know, also her trip to heaven was that she crawled down a tunnel that was lined with bricks. And huh. she met a woman named Elizabeth. So the second question you had is, why do I like to talk to children about these experiences? Well, first of all, I don't really have the patience to hear like these stories that go on for half an hour or an hour. <laughs> they have these really short experiences. But second of all, they're not drafting any of their beliefs onto it. I mean, it's so, I mean, not only is the whole experience counterintuitive, but she's not talking about a tunnel. She's not talking about a light. And mm-hmm. whoever heard of Elizabeth, you know, as an angel, there's no Elizabeth in her family. Huh. He crawled to heaven in a tunnel lined with bricks. <laughs> so I asked your family, I said, okay, what did you teach her about heaven? This is a traditional Mormon family, and they taught her the traditional Mormon stuff. They didn't teach her. You crawl through a brick lined <laughs> <bricks>. tunnel. <laughs> so, you know, so right away I knew there was something to this. Cool. Hmm. We just thought, um, I was at the time in the Department of Neurology at Seattle Children's, and uh, I worked with the, uh, I did a lot of intensive care unit medicine, and we just thought we were in a perfect position to study this stuff. So we interviewed every single survivor of cardiac arrest at Seattle Children's Hospital for a 15 year. And here's the deal. We didn't accept volunteers. We didn't, you know, we decided who was near death. So I'm not like knocking Raymond Moody's study, but remember his study was people that came up to him after lectures. Right. Well, obviously 
that's going to be just a certain kind of person that's going to want to do that. We didn't do that. We interviewed survivors of cardiac arrest, patients that we knew were unlikely to live. And we carefully compared them with patients who had the exact same medical profile, same lack of oxygen to the brain, same medications, same reason to have hallucinations. Only difference, they didn't have a cardiac arrest. And 23 out of 27 of our patients described near-death experiences. And most of them had never discussed these before. It wasn't until we enrolled them in our study and then we went to them and we said, oh, by the way, (laughs) you know, I mean, these conversations were awkward, to say the least. You know, we're like, well, you know, by the way, did anything happen to you (laughs) while while the doctors were working? So were they were they older at the time you interviewed them? So they were were from three to 15. Okay. Wow. Did, did anybody decided, else crawl to heaven? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and here's the thing. The fact that these all experiences are all so different uh-huh. is what, to me, authenticates them. Mm-hmm. No, we had one uh, child told me her living teachers were there and that her living, her living classmates were there and her living teacher told her how to get to heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So obviously, this is an experience that is beyond our ability to describe, and we're just putting it into terms we can understand. And I think that really hangs up adults, because they're like, well, I saw Jesus, so Jesus must be real. Another person says, well, I didn't see Jesus. Well, so you didn't see the real experiencer. I mean, this girl saw her living teacher. But she didn't have anybody in her, uh, you know. Another reason that I feel obligated to explain these experiences um, is because I heard them for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And they're different after the first time. I'll give you an example. (laughs) I I can't stop laughing. This stuff, I mean, it is on one level hilarious. This boy. uh, parents were driving home from a ski vacation. They were ski instructors in the Cascade Mountains. It was snowing, um, coming down the mountain. Their car flipped out of control, flipped over the edge wow. of uh, the guardrail and into the river below. Jeez. What's amazing is a car behind them was just following their headlights you know how you do that when there's uh-huh. a lot of snow mm-hmm. and their headlights suddenly disappeared. Oh, so the guy was like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure I would have done it, but anyway, he thought to himself, where'd their headlights go? <laughs> so he actually stopped and went and looked and there was their car. And this young man was in the water, uh, underwater for 45 minutes. Wow. So, I mean, that's near death. You know, How old was but, he? And uh, he was, let's see, I guess he was eight. Uh, Chris Eggleston. And, you know, I mean, a rule of critical care medicine is you're not dead until you're warm and dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So here's what he tells me. He says, well, I was in this huge noodle and I was, <laughs> I went to the human heaven in a huge noodle. And then he goes, oh no, it couldn't have been a noodle because noodles don't have rainbows. <laughs> well, after he's told the experience then to his parents and to everybody else, you know, then it's just, I went to a tunnel to heaven. Yeah. Got a rainbow in it. Yeah. But hearing it that first time, and I, I got to give you another example because I just love it. this. One girl says to me that uh, we had the, by the way, and these patients are near death. And so that's the other thing. You know, I see a lot of controversy in the, when people discuss it, well, were they real to have their mouth? Yeah. So the, the, the benefit of that these were patients we resuscitated is we knew their medical histories and we had to put a needle in her heart to restart her heart. Uh, That's near death. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's death. Yeah. I mean, you you can't get around it, you know? So all these arguments where they weren't really near death or it was a hallucination or these are patients, their brains aren't working. And so she tells me that she remembered the crash card and our efforts to resuscitate her. And then she says that her grandmother was there and she goes, I was just so shocked to see her because <laughs> <laughs> her grandmother had passed. And then she says to me, and then I was back. Hmm. And I said, so what do you mean by that? And she goes, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Oh, <laughs> yeah. so, so now- so Melvin, the deal is, but let me, I'm sorry to okay. see, she never told it that way again. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. You see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So they're so, influenced by the people they talk yeah. to, the parents, the family. Yeah. yeah. So Melvin, hmm. the, the girl who saw the living teacher, could that have been a guide, but she didn't, uh, she, she just saw the guide as the teacher as her living teacher right exactly yeah because if you're in elementary school your teacher's everything right i'll give you i'll give you a funny example uh this one girl she electrocuted herself in the bathtub Uh, you know back in the day when you could do that kind of thing you know before the gfi switches and everything Mm -hmm. so after we resuscitated her (laughs) it's just i love talking to children because they're so pure, they're so innocent. They're not embellishing and bringing in a lot right. of stuff. So she says to me, you know, thanks a lot for that nurse that you had that held my hand when you were doing all that stuff to me. Wow. Well, she didn't say stuff, but, you know, while you were poking me with needles and sticking all those tubes in me. Yeah. And I said, really? So what do you mean? She said, you know, that nurse... She was just sitting there beside me, holding my hand. <laughs> well, we don't actually have, or maybe they do, you know, now I think we're more advanced, but back then we didn't have anybody holding their hand during her <laughs> solicitation. Wow. That's interesting. You know, so that's an example, Rob, of, you know, so she saw it as a nurse. Yeah. Right. I had another girl told me it was doctors <laughs> who were 14 <laughs> feet tall and had light bulbs <laughs> in their body. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. So from children, 
you hear the pure experience. Yeah. Hmm. And you just don't, you know, from the adult stories that I've read or people have told me, you know, it's much more framed yeah. and cultural, you know. Or and, religious. Yeah. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, what they understand. Yeah. And I don't have anything against that. Dogma is good for many people. So I don't want to sound like I'm against dogma. So back to your back to your study, Melvin. So the the non-cardiac arrest uh, group, the control group, I guess they're called. How did they do with uh, NDEs? Those were the ones that fit the Johns Hopkins textbook of what <laughs> happens to you. They didn't uh, remember anything. Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, no we have short-term and long-term memory, and so those patients their short-term memories wiped out. They mostly didn't even remember coming to the hospital. They certainly didn't describe. And I mean, we we picked patients who had severe lack of oxygen, treated with every kind of mind-altering drug you can imagine. I'm only seeing people say stuff like, oh, isn't there some big opioid release in the brain at the point of death? (laughs) You know, you know, I mean, we were physicians. We were looking for that kind of stuff. We interviewed dozens of patients who had massive doses of morphine, and none of them reported this kind of experience huh. or any experience. I mean, they're just so. What I learned from this is that we do lose consciousness as we're dying. And then at the point of death, consciousness returns. Mm -hmm. And it's an expanded sense of awareness. So those ancient Tibetan monks, you know, who are meditating 12 hours a day for, you know, hundreds of years, (laughs) they were right. Yeah. Because that's what they said. They said, hey, you know, when the I disappears, you know, meaning when the ego disappears, Uh the clear light of consciousness comes. Well, sure, that's what we found too. When the brain dies, then paradoxically, consciousness returns. Melvin, have you kept in touch with any of these kids over the years? Oh, yeah. You have? Oh, God. Do they remember all this? They're like little mini mystics. (laughs) I mean, I would think so. It's like if I told you about their lives, I mean, it's just like, you know, of course they do social work and of course they work with prisoners and of course they have wonderful families. And, you know, I mean, it's just on and on and on and on, you know, and they're just like, what I learned here's the big mystery of life that we're supposed to be kind and love each other. And these people really show that. They really show that, I mean, they live a life of of kindness. I mean, I'm not saying they're perfect people. Uh, uh, Crystal Merslock, the young uh, girl that I resuscitated, I just spent some time with her. Um, And, you know, she's a social worker in rural Wyoming, but she goes on retreats where they don't talk for a week. (laughs) But I mean, but she got divorced. I mean, she's got, you know, I'm not, but, 
I mean, I mean, uh, all of the, I've keep in touch with maybe 10 of them. Hmm, and interesting. you just feel great being around them. Huh. Yeah. I don't know if you know people like that. But Not you know, very people, many these days. <laughs> I know. But you know, yeah. the kind of person you're just yeah. like, when I was with Rip Crystal, I didn't even really feel like saying anything. Uh-huh. You know, I just was like, wow. How old is she now? Uh, I think she's 41. Wow. Oh. Well, she was seven. Happened in eight. I'm pretty sure it's 41. Uh-huh. Yeah. Huh. So this leads to the question, what is spiritual neuroscience? Okay. Here's the deal. Everything is our brain, Rob. We can't get around it. This idea that the soul is some sort of gaseous vapor that somehow separates from the brain and leaves at death. Nothing that I learned from near-death research showed that. Instead, these are areas of the brain which allow us to have spiritual experience and connect us with reality. And this is wild, Rob. (laughs) You have to be a scientist to understand what I'm going to tell you. But what I just told you is not controversial. So you hear all this stuff that science debunks the near-death mm-hmm. experience. That's not true. For over a hundred years, it's been known that we have areas of the brain that allow us to communicate with God. Mm-hmm. But why haven't you heard that before? Because for most of that time, since people didn't, you know, scientists often don't believe in God and they don't believe in spirituality. They just thought that those were areas of the brain that created the artifact of God. Mm-hmm. But that's just a philosophical belief. Hmm. Let's flip it around the other way. Suppose consciousness is using our brain to interact in this reality. Well, then obviously there has to be areas of the brain which can process spirituality. So um, a lot of, there's so much misunderstanding that I just hope that you will, if I'm not explaining this right, just ask me questions until I get it right. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, yeah. So this, the functions of the brain can identify some of the aspects of the near-death experience. What about the light that people see when, when they're completely... Uh, seemingly dead would they still uh, how would that function through the brain when they're seeing this light this and especially it's not just a regular light it's a light of love and uh celestial yeah so the only thing that's controversial is is that light real Mm -hmm. that's what's controversial Uh, yeah but people meditate all the time rob and see that light Mm-hmm. And they use their brains to do it. Mm-hmm. This is, here's the deal. We use our brains for everything. So when people say to me, well, it's just in the brain. I say, yeah, finally you got it. It's <laughs> just in the brain. Like our left temporal lobe allows us to create language. So most people think language is real. And there's areas of the brain that allow me to 
you know, here and move my arm. Well, most people think that stuff is real. So why do they think that the areas of the brain that allow me to see this light, this God, isn't real? I mean, that makes no sense. Yeah. To me, it makes more sense that we actually have. Well, I said it was a God spot back in 2004. No neuroscientist has challenged that. Huh. None. I've published in the scientific literature, etc. The only scientists who have challenged it is a guy named Mario Beauregard from University of Montreal. He said, no, no, he's got it all wrong. It's not a God spot. It's a God brain. He says it's actually a third of the brain. Another guy that wrote a book called Spiritual Doorway to the Brain says the same thing, that about a third of our brain is dedicated to have spiritual experiences. The problem is he doesn't happen to believe that spiritual experiences are real. But that's an issue of faith. That's, you know, that's not, scientists have no business commenting on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if a third of our brain is dedicated to allowing us to see God, and uh, let's see, uh, when people die, that area of the brain activates, for many of them, the first time in their life, and they see God, well, Occam's razor would say, there is a God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Can can I ask a question real quick? Uh, yeah. So so uh, so have, and I don't know if this will be controversial or not, but it just occurs to me. Uh, have you ever looked into psychedelics? And is it possible that? And, and I have no experience with it, just to be clear. But uh, <laughs> but but uh, is it possible that <laughs> some, some of the uh, some of the uh, accounts of, of uh, uh, using psychedelics could be activating that portion of the brain. I'm just curious. Absolutely. You know, let's just clear the air first before we discuss. Psychedelics have a bad reputation because of street use and ugly, unregulated use and all that crap. But you can't get around it. Psychedelics activate that area of the brain. The area of the brain specifically is the right temporal lobe and your cerebellum. And activate, that's where psychedelics have most of their function. They activate that area of the brain, and sure enough, you see God. Mm-hmm. If you choose to not believe it's a real God, well, that's up to you. I mean, I've talked to people that have had spiritual experiences that you could start a religion from. <laughs> And then they say to me, ah, it's just some coincidence. Oh, I'm really, you know, so I mean, with it, well, I think it's our society. We have a society that um, is really doesn't validate spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. That's why your show is so important Mm -hmm. because I find most people have incredible spiritual experiences and they just dismiss them or in wealth with psychedelics. They say, Oh, well, it's just because I took psychedelics Mm -hmm. instead of, oh, I took psychedelics to see God. 
Yeah. Um, so you you mentioned coincidences. What about meaningful coincidences? Have what about seen, synchronicities? Yeah, the, the coincidence uh, part of it. Yeah. Have you seen <laughs> okay. a relationship between NDEs and uh, synchronicity or meaningful? They all say it. Uh-huh. There's no getting around it. Mm-hmm. When they, I mean, I was just at the International Association of Near Death Study, and you know, like you know how like in football games you drink a beer every time that the person the you know the announcers say they came to play football <laughs> if you drank a beer every time at the ions convention they said there's no coincidences <laughs> i mean you would be you'd be blasted all the time <laughs> so that's what they say they say there's no coincidences so that really leads to the whole question yeah. of entanglement Yes. Yeah, it really does. So I really think we're all talking about the same thing Mm -hmm. because we're talking about a world that's a web of interactions Mm -hmm. and, you know, and here's here's what they mean by it. Um, I interviewed a lot of patients and follow up later on. So. I interviewed this one man. This this was when I was younger. And I was an arrogant critical care physician when I was younger. I was, you know. <laughs> so I, I'm only surprised when I be read things that he was an arrogant bastard, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, you guess you haven't met many critical care physicians. Um, we have to think we know everything. How else mm-hmm. could you do what we do? Okay, so this kid says to me um, that he learned from his experience that his life had a purpose and a meaning. So I'm not kidding. I said to him, oh, yeah, really? (laughs) So what, you like, you're going to cure cancer? or I mean, that's your big meaning in life. Uh I was that kind of person. But nevertheless, (laughs) it doesn't hurt to be that way because... He just came right back at me and gave me an answer I might not have gotten any other way. He said, no. He said, you don't understand at all. I'll never know the purpose of my life. Maybe I'll be walking across the street and it'll cause a car to stop. Mm -hmm. And because that car stopped, that meant that someone else was late getting home from work. And maybe that that meant that someone's life was saved and they weren't in a car accident. Synchronicity. I mean, yeah. that's what they believe. And I believe in that. And can I tell you my, my story? I'd love to hear it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. So I thought this synchronicity stuff was a bunch of crap. Plus my mom is constantly telling me that. She's constantly telling you this. Oh God. So, you know, I mean, I'm like a real person. Anything your mom constantly tells you, you know, you're like, all right. So I went to see a fellow uh, researcher. His name's Pin von Lummel, cardiologist uh, in uh, Holland, doing the same kind of research that uh, we did, but in adults. And so he gives me the whole, everything's a coincidence. And I go to a meeting and they're all, there's no coincidences. I'm like, are you kidding? Life is all about coincidence. Okay, so I go home and I decide I'm going to test this out. 
And <laughs> I decided I'll buy Dr. Vummel, Van Lummel a present. And remember the whole Shirley MacLaine thing where the book just leaked out. You remember I, that? Yeah. Okay. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go see if I can replicate that. <laughs> I go down to the Elliott Bay bookstore and I ask for an old medical book. And they only have one. There's only one in the whole store. Usually they have, you know, 50. And it's this, you know, old medical text uh, written in Dutch. So I bought it. So I took it to Dr. Van Lummel and I said, okay, now I'm going to show you. There's no coincidences. I just <laughs> picked up this book, totally coincidental. And here it is. Here's your present. And he looks at me and he says, that was written by my grandfather. Oh my God. <laughs> that is huge. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a, uh, that's, a, that's a mega coincidence. <laughs> that, that is really, that's a good one. Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, and, you know, I, I, this isn't science, what I'm going to tell you now, but I believe they're right. I think that we, well, first of all, one of my professors at Johns Hopkins always used to say, coincidence is the province of the lazy mind. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's right. I really think that we don't pay enough attention to what's no, going don't. on around us. Mm -hmm. And once I listened up to these experiences and really started, you know, to make that shift from thinking that they were just drug-induced hallucinations mm -hmm. to really trying to learn from them, uh, I, I agree. There's so many events in my life, so many things that you don't even understand the purpose of them until two or three years later. Right. Or sometimes 20 years back. later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Events in my life that I thought were horrible turned out to allow me to care for my mom in the last year of her life mm -hmm. while she was dying of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So everything is connected, and at least in, in my life. And I, I, I think... My mother also had Alzheimer's and yeah. I believe I honestly learned to believe this because of her, that if your consciousness isn't focused here with Alzheimer's, it's focused elsewhere. And my mother really feared dying. So we would go to visit her and she goes, oh, my brother just stopped by. And a psychic was yeah. with me one time and she said, oh, was his name Dick? And the psychic says, my mom goes, yeah. And she says, he's sitting at the foot of your bed. And that's when yeah. I, I really realized what was going on with her with Alzheimer's. You know, it was yeah. her way to, to, to explore the afterlife without having to go there yet. And Trish, um, I, I'm the broken record with this because I'm so sick of hearing it. I'm so sick of hearing this crap, this science and spirituality. You know, the science somehow bunks spirituality. Guess what? 70% of the matter of this universe, we can't see. Mm -hmm. We call it dark matter. Right. Well, it's made of the same electrons and protons and subatomic <clears throat> particles that we're made of. And it's not like that dark matter is all off, you know, past Andromeda galaxy or something. No, it's all around us. So, I mean... Why wouldn't Dick be right there at the bedside? Yeah, exactly. That I was mean, how I felt. Why not? 
that if 80% of the universe we can't see, and by the way, we can't see 80% of this universe. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, our sensory, our sensory receptors, you know, we only take in a tiny, a tiny fragment of all the light there is to see. But, you know, I don't, I don't have any trouble from a scientific standpoint thinking that angels and, you know, in my one, that's why I learned more and gained more from caring for my mom than she did. That uh, because she would from time to time uh, look up at the ceiling and say, Malcolm, you know, I'm not ready yet. Stuff like that. Huh. And I get skeptics. I really do. My heart goes out to it because really, unless you see this stuff yourself, mm-hmm. it's hard to believe. Yeah. That's true. I mean, if someone else tells me that sort of thing, I'm like, ah, you know, and it's just, that's why. Really, as a critical care physician, I didn't really have any particular interest in, you know, telling these stories. I just feel I had an obligation mm-hmm. because yeah. when I read these stories, I'm uncertain as to what what was the real medical history. Were they really near death? Mm-hmm. What did they really say? How much was, you know, grafted into it? You know, how much of it was sort of the cold reading kind of stuff that happens. You know, with my own research, we know we resuscitated these patients Mm -hmm. and we know what they said for the first time. We recorded it. We videotaped it. We had them draw pictures. We wrote it up for the medical literature. Melvin, Mm -hmm. have have you noticed any difference from when you began your research to the present in regards to uh, mainstream science, how mainstream science relates to NDE? Are there more scientists open to it, you think, or? (laughs) Well, let me tell you what has progressed. When I started this research, it was widely thought that these people were crazy. So that was really the issue, Mm -hmm. you know. So back in the, I think, 80s and 90s, the issue was, um, you know, are they making this stuff up? Uh, Are they attention seekers? Do they have some sort of psychiatric illness? Do they have some fantasy-prone personality? You heard all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do want to say... um, because of the work uh, that we did at Seattle Children's Hospital and Ben von Lummel. And I think the whole concept of spiritual neuroscience, which has shown that we do have areas of the brain. Well, there are areas of the brain that have been known about <laughs> for, like I said, a hundred years, but they just have never really been married with near-death research. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sort of seen as you know, I don't know, hallucinations. Mm-hmm. But Wilder Penfield, 50 years ago, the father of neuroscience, of neurosurgery, stimulated people's brains. And they would say things like, oh, God, I'm out of my body. Huh. Or things like, I'm half in and I'm half out. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was the talk. Nowadays, everybody accepts that these are the dying experience. Yeah. but. I still think the issue, yeah, it is huge, 
but I still think the issue of faith, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're a faith denying society. We, so I do think that by and large, like, well, I told you about Roger Nelson. He wrote this book. It's a great book called Spiritual Doorway to the Brain. Does a beautiful job of showing spiritual neuroscience and all of the spiritual aspects that of the brain. And then he concludes, isn't it nice that we have these illusions that help us? Oh, my God. (laughs) That's kind of disappointing. That's the way the book ends. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what he says. He says, well, of course, I guess if it makes you feel better to believe it's a real God, good on you. (laughs) But, But that is a huge, I mean, that's a big difference. It is now accepted that it's the dying experience. Mm. It's just now people say, well, so you know, it's just neurochemicals at the point of death. Mm-hmm. Whereas I say, yeah, it's neurochemicals <laughs> at the point of death. Mm-hmm. Right. Because everything we experience is normal chemicals. Well, do you One, believe, I mean, do you, do you see consciousness as being confined to the brain or is it everywhere? Oh, it's everywhere. Okay. Oh, that it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. The brain is clearly okay. I mean, here's what I've learned in a nutshell for 35 years of studying this stuff. We are here to learn lessons of love. There's a specific reason we are on this earth, and that is to learn lessons of love. And that's why there's no coincidences Mm -hmm. because everything is contributing. To that process, whether we know it or not. And I believe that that's a scientific statement in the year 2022 mm-hmm. for the reason that all the science says near death experiences are real. Even if you want to believe the people who think they're seeing a fake God, but they're still saying the experience happens at the point of death. And the people who say it say we're here to learn lessons of love. So, if we're here to learn lessons of love, well, how could we do that unless we had this shared reality? So, consciousness has to come into our brain, and then our brain, you know, creates this invented reality. Um, You know, not to go into deep neuroscience, Mm -hmm. but, you know, just to remind you, our dear listeners, we don't actually even see the color red. We invent the color red in our brain. Red doesn't exist in nature. Our eyes aren't video cameras. We make, we create this reality in our brain. And rather than go into it any further, if people want to understand the near-death experience, the first thing they should do is watch the PBS series, The Brain. Hmm. Because you have to understand how the brain works and the brain creates this reality. Okay. Well, that makes sense because how else could we learn our lessons of love if we didn't have a shared reality to, uh, to interact with each other. Yeah. And that is why spiritual experiences I think are so hard to understand because think how hard it was to agree on the color red. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, really, yeah. I mean, you have to endlessly tell kids that's red, that's red, that's red, and they're not getting it. 
That's red. That's red. That's red. red. (laughs) Well, really, we spend a lot of time training each other. What is this shared reality? Well, we don't spend much time training each other. What is the spiritual reality? Uh I mean, you'd have to go back to the Tibetan Buddhists. You'd have to go to these and 10, you know, really where people spend all their time meditating Mm -hmm. and thinking about consciousness. But that's a lot of the reason to me why it's hard to understand the spiritual reality, because my spirituality is going to be different than yours, just like my idea of the color red is different Mm -hmm. than yours. But we spent a couple of years agreeing on what was red, (laughs) whereas, you know, whereas we're all confused by, well, you saw Jesus and I saw a living teacher and she saw a nurse and another person just saw a person holding my hand, Uh you know, and then we haven't, you know, we've, we need to spend some time, you know, realizing that those are all the same experience. Uh That's interesting. Okay. Are you familiar with the Bigelow contest about proving that consciousness survives death? Why, why did he eliminate NDEs? I worked for, I worked for uh, Bob Bigelow for four years. Uh, It's a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. I worked for his national Institute of discovery science. And I don't know the answer to your question. Yeah. Um, that is why I didn't enter the contest, because my opinion is that the near-death experience is the best proof of life mm-hmm. after death. Right. The near-death experience is the most scientifically studied experience. There's even experimental studies. Get this. <laughs> From the National Warfare Institute. Only the, you know, only the military could do this. They whirl fighter pilots in centrifuges at enormous speeds to see how much they can take, you know, in terms of an accelerating plane. And right, so those those pilots become comatose, they lose body tone, they have seizures, they huh. lose their bowel movements. So then they're right at the point of theoretically when they're going to die. And guess what? Consciousness returns. Huh. That's fascinating. And they have, you know, like the near-death experience. So, I mean, in Ben von Lummel's study done in uh, adults, published in The Lancet, you know, mm. that's like right. the world, you know. Right. We published our studies in the AMA's American Journal of Disease of Children. Huh. I mean, so the AMA is not the New Age Journal. Yeah. I mean... You know, sure. <laughs> you know, so th- there's no doubt about it that the science tells us that the near-death experience is real. Mm. So, like I was said earlier, well, people seem to see God when they're dead, when they die, and they have this expanded sense of consciousness. Wouldn't that validate all the other after-death communications, parting visions, premonitions of dead? I mean, let's look at it the other way. The people who say that it's not proof of life after death, they have to tie themselves into logical knots. I mean, you can you can hardly follow their reasoning. I mean, you know, they write these these dense ten page papers 
you know, twisting themselves at the knots yeah. on, I mean, why would we evolve a system that allows us to see God when we die? What possible survival advantage mm. would that be? Whereas evolving a system which allows us to see a real God while we're both alive and then molested. I mean, there is obviously an evolutionary purpose to that. Uh-huh. So that's a long answer to say, I have, I have the greatest respect for Mr. Bigelow. I think he's done more for consciousness research and I have no idea why, why that happened. Yeah. But, it just um, seemed curious to us, you know, like a, a big omission. Well, I, that's why I didn't enter. That's why Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia, also one of the top near-death, uh-huh. you know, Professor Emeritus, the University of Virginia. You know, and um, so it seems to me that that is the best proof of life after death. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so our, fi- our final question, Melvin, is uh, why oh, did no, you... No, we, be- we can't let him go yet. We have <laughs> many questions for Melvin. <laughs> why did you become a remote viewer? And uh, okay. what, do you, what do you do with that skill? All right. I guess I'm still... I spend a lot of time on Facebook because I want to know what are the barriers to understanding spirituality. Mm -hmm. And the greatest barrier is that we just don't believe this stuff. Mm -hmm. That we just don't. Mm -hmm. You know, that, you know, people like I told you, you know, I don't, you know, I could tell you so many stories of people have incredible experiences. And then they tell me, oh, that was just some crazy widow's dream. Or, well, I know that you scientists don't believe it's true. See, I I don't get that. How can you deny the validity of your own experience? Yeah, but they do. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. So on this cut from the same cloth. um, All right, I'm going to set this up by telling you that my mom who's passed sends me dimes. To let me know that she's there. I, I believe I'll, that. I'll explain to you why she sends me dimes. That's okay. a great story. <laughs> okay. So when we heard this story from Crystal Murray's lock, we didn't believe it. Even though she described her own resuscitation, even though, you know, this defied everything we knew, even though we knew she was clinically dead, we just didn't believe it. And when we did our study and we're interviewing survivor after survivor of cardiac arrest, it's just hard to believe. All right. So this one kid, um, the the huge noodle guy, remember I told you about the noodle guy? He says to me, but was it real, Dr. Morse? Because if it was real, you got to tell all the old people. (laughs) <laughs> I took him seriously. I really, because we're dealing with grieving parents here. I spent a lot of time grieving parents as a critical care physician. And grieving parents are the most skeptical and cynical critics of this stuff yeah. because they don't want to be sold a bill of goods and they don't want to be patted on the wrist and just told something to make them feel better. Mm-hmm. 
And if I'm going to tell them that the dying experience involves, well, seeing God and going to heaven, I have to, you know, I, I, you know, I have a responsibility, mm-hmm. but that's true. And if our conclusion was that this was a hallucination, I have a responsibility to tell them that too, because there's nothing worse than losing a child and they deserve honesty. And by and large, once you've suffered that pain, you can sure suffer just about anything else. You know, someone talking to you bluntly. When I dealt with dying patients, I, you know, with patients who'd passed, I always told them what happened. I told them the mistakes we made. I told them, you know, we did our best. I told them when we could have done better because I just think they deserve it. All right. So what do they say when they have a near-death experience? They say they enter into a world of all information. God knows everything. And that this world that they enter into contains all the information that ever was and ever will be. Hmm. And that it's timeless. And kids have their own ways of saying, but they would, you know, wow, when I was there, I knew everything. Well, there's no way that I can prove or really, I think, intelligently study whether there's a God. Uh That part of it, I just didn't see any way forward. But the idea that this universe is a unit informational universe and that there's a source of information that's available to all of us. That's what the remote viewers claim. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, you know, if you go on the internet and research remote viewing, you're going to puke your guts out. <laughs> there are so many con artists. Yeah, there are. There's so many crap and so many poorly done studies. And this is my favorite. They get like 40 people in the audience and then they give them a target and then one or two people get it. They go, wow, see, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, 40 people guessed what it was <laughs> and yeah. sure enough, one or two were right. And I came to the conclusion the only way that I would know if it was true is if I learned it myself. And it is mind-blowing. It is true. And let me tell you what it is. I learned the military control remote viewing. So here's what it is. You get a number. That's all you get. A nine-digit number. And then on my own, I have to access the information that corresponds to that number, you know, sort of, let's say it's the Eiffel Tower, that, you know, so, you know, that's metallic and it's tall and there's honking horns nearby and, you know, all that stuff. And they have a protocol. The protocol is a pen and paper. I would guess that realistically a meditative exercise. Mm-hmm. You have to do it with two people. You can't do it with one person. That's why I'm a little skeptical of mediums. I I think there is something in mediumship, but just seeing how the accuracy of remote viewing, when two people do it, whereas when one person does it, 
because one person has to do the viewing and try to just stay getting the information. Uh-huh. The other person has to be constantly telling them, no, that was a noun. No, that came from your own mind. Mm-hmm. No, you just made that up. You know, you know, so the other person has to, to do the sorting, if you will, um, of the information. And I, you know, I've been remote viewing now for 10 years. And every time I do it, it still blows my mind. It's just, it's as counterintuitive as a near-death experience. You just can't believe it's true. Yeah. Did you and, learn from one of the uh, military remote viewers, or former? Or at the Monroe Institute? Unfortunately, I've never been to the Monroe Institute. I'd love to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, I have learned from Skip Atwater, okay. who oh, okay. is the uh, yeah. Monroe Institute teacher. Right. Um, I learned from Paul Smith, mm-hmm. uh, Lynn Buchanan. Uh-huh. One thing about studying near-death experiences and children is they opened a lot of doors for me. So I, I learned, I trained from really four or five of the top military remote viewers. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. it is, but I think I don't blame people for don't, who don't believe in remote viewing. Mm-hmm. You really have to do it yourself. Yeah. But here's how powerful it is. I've worked with people who are totally spiritual. Like if I ever taught, I teach you guys remote viewing. I mean, taking your person who's like, yeah, I'm one with the universe and I have a teacher within and I, you know, and you know what I mean? mean, And they believe it and they're totally on the right page with it. And, and, you know, they're practically levitating when they meditate. (laughs) And I teach them to remote view and they go, holy shit, it's really true. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's great. <laughs> so that's I why I learned it. remote view because I just thought that was one piece of the puzzle. And well, do I you teach not... remote viewing? Yeah. Oh, how can we sign up? <laughs> you know, I don't really charge to teach remote viewing. I teach you guys to remote viewing for free. I, That'd be great. Takes, I'd love to. Oh, gosh. It takes about five hours. I do not teach. Like, if you really want to learn it, you got to take one of these four or five day courses. It costs thousands of dollars. Uh-huh. I figured out a way to get you through one remote viewing session wow. in about five hours. Oh. And since it's done by two people, it'd be perfect if the two of you learned it. Okay, Rob. That's our next, that's our next thing. I can teach you you through Zoom, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, So I'd be happy to teach you. Because only a few thousand people can reliably remove you. And we've got to get the number up. Uh We have to get a critical mass where people start to believe this, Mm -hmm. that that it becomes common sense that we see God when we're in spiritual crisis, that it's common sense that a grieving parent would see God. And right now it's not. Uh Right now it's, oh, it's a grief-induced hallucination. Oh, they have a desperate need to see their son, so then they see their son. Hmm. I'd love to learn it. Yeah, that would be fantastic. We should follow up on that. 
uh, uh, Melvin, uh, my golden retriever has come over and told us our hour is up, which he always does. He knows when we're done. That's and, great. And, <laughs> so this has been fantastic. Oh, this has we're been really... fantastic. And we have to, uh, I, I'm ready to sign up today. Okay. <laughs> However you want to do it. Oh, you just have to, you know, contact me off yeah, the we'll, air. We'll contact we'll. you. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. But so uh, don't forget now my website. It's melvinmorsemd.com. Also, okay. give your Facebook because you're so active on there. I am active on Facebook, just Melvin Morse. Okay. But if people would go to melvinmorse.com, I've put up all the kids' interviews. Oh, wow. great. Okay. You know, they okay. uh, um, a lot of them are the raw footage, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because there's nothing like hearing it from a child. Yeah. And I just... You know, when I did wrote my first book, one of the happiest or the not happy, it's not, nothing is happy about this, but one of the things that gave me the greatest satisfaction is parents who would write to me and say, <clears throat> you know, we know you can't tell us our child's in heaven. <clears throat> you know, these aren't, but, but <laughs> at least you let us know that those final minutes of life were not painful. You know, I felt so guilty, you know, letting you doctors take uh -huh. my son, you know, putting tubes in him. And most resuscitations fail. I mean, you know, we studied 25 patients over 15 years. We had to look at hundreds of charts. So, you know, we do a lot of this stuff just because we think we have to do it. Uh -huh. And, you know, for, for parents to know that their child is comforted by someone, has some sort of a guide right. that helps them through the experience, that in fact, I mean, it is, I'm not going to say it's not painful. Mm -hmm. It's painful up to a point. And then, you know, mm -hmm. there there's a sense of peace, a sense of love, and a sense that this world is about learning to love like that. The, the love that they experience at the end of life. Wow. And that, that, you know, just once I realized that that was of such comfort to parents, I just felt like, mm. you know, I mean, who else is going to do it? Yeah, exactly. There'll never be another study like ours. Yeah. Boy, that's for sure. <laughs> well, Melvin, thank you very much. Oh, this has just really been enjoyed. incredible. You bet. So fascinating. And John, when will this episode go up? It will be uh, three weeks from today. Uh, okay. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, three weeks? Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Uh, no, well. Today, next week. Two, two weeks. No, right? two weeks. Yep, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Two weeks. Okay. It'll be three. Okay. It'll and be we'll three. We haven't, we haven't posted today's show yet. So, yeah, it'll be three shows from now. But yeah, okay, and you, you guys will drop me a letter. Yeah, we we'll, certainly we'll will. We'll, well, you're going to see us on Zoom. <laughs> Teach us how to remote view. Yeah, we'll, reach, well, we'll it, arrange a time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would guess it's going to be uh, sometime in uh, mid-November. 
Okay. That's well, and we'll need to do a, a follow-up episode on that as long <laughs> with, uh, along with the fact that I'd like to get more into dark matter and uh, how the human brain scales up to the yeah, that's brain and whether dark matter may be the universal memory. But at any rate, so, all right. <laughs> Wait, do I have one more minute? Yes, okay, of course. <laughs> as a neuroscientist, who works with Harvard-trained neuroscientists, I can tell you there is no theory of how memory can be stored in the human brain. And Fred Lashley, the father of modern um, memory research, said at the end of his career, if I didn't know better, I'd think memory was stored outside the brain. Wow. So, so it is so not. There you go, John. We're, yeah. we're all floating our backup. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, this has just okay. been great. Thank well, thank you, you so much. much. You're and so welcome. We'll be in touch. <laughs> all righty. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. Thank you.